What a wonderful treat we all have starting a new semester of Amen together. I know I and Todd and George are just delighted uh, to enter into this, uh, to this study with you this fall that will carry us through actually next fall. We're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis. And I just want to echo what Jerry said. Gentlemen, we're so thankful for your prayers and the legacy that you've set here in Amen. You know, last night we did our inaugural Wednesday night Amen and the leadership team of Thursday Amen and Todd and I got together and we prayed a whole bunch and, and really asked God to bless it. We were hoping for at least 30 guys uh, well, God just blew that out of the water, as he always does. About 116 people came last night, and that is just a testimony to your prayers and your faithfulness and the legacy that you set, so we're so grateful for you, and we hope that you're encouraged by that. Uh, but we're encouraged, too, because we believe that, that amen is one of the greatest things going on in the city of Memphis. Uh, we don't know of too many other opportunities that men can come together of all different ages over Miss Kim's eggs and bacon and delicious coffee. And uh, study God's word verse by verse, getting the meat of it, and really study it and abide in it and see what God might have for us. It is such a wonderful opportunity that we have to study God's word. Now, this fall, we're going to start in Genesis, as, as you know. Why are we studying Genesis? Well, uh, simply, Genesis is the foundation, fellas, of everything that we need to know for life and faith. Uh, for example, uh, Genesis is the beginning, the foundation of the entirety of our Bibles. For example, Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch, right? Which is the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the law. The Pentateuch itself is 78% of the entire Old Testament. So uh, we simply cannot understand the Old Testament if we don't understand what's going on in Genesis. Genesis 2 is the foundation for the New Testament. Two of the mountaintop messianic prophecies about Jesus Christ find themselves in the book of Genesis. New Testament quotes Genesis at least 34 times. Jesus and the Apostle Paul themselves uh, attest to the historicity and the theological importance of Genesis. It is simply the foundation of our Bibles, and therefore Genesis is the foundations for the Christian faith. The paradigm we see of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration that we see in Genesis sets the pattern for how we can understand God's ultimate purpose for the world and therefore his ultimate purpose for us. Uh, it's just a marvel of all the things that we learn in Genesis. And God's ultimate purpose, I'll just give you the spoiler, is for us to be redeemed in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, who, by the way, we also meet in Genesis, including Genesis 1, which is incredible. And we'll see that, how that takes place in a little bit. Uh, but the point is, in Genesis, we meet God, our creator, and also God, our redeemer. So the importance for Genesis for the believer simply cannot be overstated. All right, so that's why we're studying Genesis. So if this is your first amen, you picked a really good one to jump on with. Now, coming to our own passage to, uh, this, or this morning from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. You'll notice that we gave you a whole bunch of handouts in your binder. I think this is the first time we've done this. Uh, a bunch of uh, just background information about Genesis, certain themes and people that we'll meet and study about uh, to kind of reorient ourselves to, to, to understand this text as we study it together. You'll see in those notes that our passage this morning uh, for Moses serves as an overture or really a prologue for everything else that we're going to study this semester. It's the, it lays the foundation for everything, in particular the climactic moment that God creates for himself a people by entering into a covenant with Abraham and his descendants where he tells Abraham, I'm going to be your God and the God of your posterity, your children, and you're going to be my people and I'm going to use you to bless the world. Our passage this morning sets the foundation for that. It's the prologue to it. 
Now, you're going to see, too, that we're going to see so many different themes and important subjects just in our text this morning. It is going to be a little bit more academic than we're used to this morning because simply it sets up everything else that we're going to study this semester. But even still, we can't get through it all because there is so much. So this is what we're going to do. This is our plan of attack. And this is really uh, the key to any time we study the scriptures together. Uh, We're not going to look at the text through the lenses of a 21st century American. Uh, we got to understand how the scriptures or this passage, what the original intent behind it was with the original author. We also have to understand, too, how the original audience heard it. It is only then that we can rightly apply it to ourselves. So that being the case, what is that original context? Well, the original author for Genesis is Moses. The original audience, of course, is Israel. And this was written, Genesis 1 included, during the dynamic of the wilderness journey that we see in the Exodus account that we've been studying on Sunday mornings in worship. So therefore, the key to interpret Genesis is through the lenses of the book of Exodus, which is kind of cool if you think about it. Now, knowing that, then, I just want you to imagine that you are in that original audience. You're Israel. You've been a slave for 400 years. Your parents, your grandparents, their grandparents, your kids, your friends, your wife, your roommates, whoever else, you've been a slave in Egypt for 400 years. You've been told that you are subhuman, that you're worthless, that you're nothing. Then all of a sudden, this crazy guy named Moses comes to you and says, all of these gods that you've been trained to worship your entire life, they're false gods. In fact, those are just creatures, creations of the one true creator, God, and he sent me to represent him to you, and he's going to rescue you. And he's going to make you as a people for himself. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, Moses, jock on, that didn't make any sense. But then God goes about and actually proves it. He sends ten plagues, each plague, by the way, which de-gods their false gods, right? So the, the, the plague of darkness directly attacks the sun god, and all the different plagues attack the whatever false gods they worship. So essentially what's happening is the one true God is saying, listen, these things are not to be worshipped. They're just creatures. I'm the one that made them. And of course, this climaxes, right, in God rescuing Israel in this dramatic fashion, parting the Red Sea and shepherding them through it safely to the land that he's promised them. So you're in this original audience, all these amazing things that just happened. You're on the way to that promised land that this God has promised you. And halfway there, uh, you take a break. You're at this place called Mount Zion where God is said to dwell. Moses is up there talking to this God. And you're laying on your back with everybody else wondering yourself, holy smokes, what in the world just happened? Who is this God? Who is this God that just openly mocked and dethroned all of these powerful deities that we've been raised to fear our entire lives? Who is this God? Who is this God that is said to have created all these things that we're staring at up in the sky? Man, if this God is in charge of all that, if he created all of that, what is his purpose for the world? What does this God think about me? It's in that setting. And right after that God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, that God says to Moses, I want you to write this down. Genesis 1. And the next time these people ask, who is this God that rescued me? I want you to say, it is the same God who promised your ancestor Abraham he was going to make a people for himself. He's going to enter into a covenant with them, including you, and he's going to use you to bless the world. And the next time they say, well, who's that God? I want you to say, well, it's the same God who formed all things for himself because he is the one true creator. That's the setting. Now, if that being true, and it is true, we have to ask ourselves, then why does God, through Moses, say what he says in Genesis 1? I mean, if this is the introduction that God gives to the people of Israel and also to us here in Amen Bible Study, why does God choose to say the things that he chose to say? He could have said a number of things. 
Why did Moses uh, organize all of this content in the way in which he did? Because there's a specific way that he says the things that he says. Why does God, through Moses, say what he does in the first perfect sentence of the first perfect book and the only perfect book ever written? Why does God choose to do that? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I like what George often says. He says, just as God is driving Israel from the land of Egypt, he also needed to drive Egypt through or out of, rather, the heart of Israel. Because remember, Israel had no idea what was going on. They were were in this land, Egypt, for 400 years, being brainwashed about false beliefs about God, or gods in their case, being brainwashed about false things about how the world worked and the purpose of the world and their place in it. And Moses knew that if they're truly going to function as God's redeemed people and enjoy this life that God had purchased them, then they need a true and accurate understanding of all of those things, all of which Genesis 1 teaches us. And that's why we're studying Genesis 1, because if we're going to be God's people, his redeemed people, men after his own heart, leaders in our church, leaders in our families, then we have to have an accurate understanding of those things too. Who is this God? What is his purpose for the world, and what is our place in it? That's why we're reading Genesis chapter 1. So let's open our Bibles to page 1 of our Bibles and read together. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let the separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters where, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. Notice, by the way, we're at the beginning of verse 6, where it says, God said, let there be... At the end of that verse, it says, and it was so. That's how powerful our God is. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together, and he called it the seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let uh, earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them, to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and to rule over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their own kind. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he had rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, truly, I am so grateful that I get to gather with my brothers where we, as your children, can come together and study your word. As we just read in our text this morning, there is so much to marvel at, so much to talk about, so much so that we don't have enough moments in this day to exhaust it. So, Father, we pray that you would sharpen my tongue and my thoughts and our ears, that we might hear what you want us to hear, that we might read your truth, not to be informed, but truly transformed. For those of us that know our Bibles well and hear things today we've heard a thousand times before, we pray that you would cause us to be still and that we wouldn't just gloss over it, but you would renew us and amaze us once again for your truth. For those of us that don't know our Bibles well and may hear some new things today, we pray again that we would be still and that you would give us special grace to understand the reality of who you are. God, we are your servants, so speak to us, for we listen. By the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon wrote that when it came to thinking of God, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy that could ever engage the mind of a child is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of our great God whom we are blessed to call Father. Isn't that so true that you and I have the ability to know God? <laughs> It's unbelievable that God has blessed it and made us so that we can actually know him and have the blessing and the privilege and the honor of describing him to others as our father. Amazing. Absolutely true. Here's another true quote. A.W. Tozer a few decades ago said that the modern church, by his estimation, 
has surrendered its once lofty concept of God for one so utterly low. This lesser view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. With the loss of majesty and all of God, modern Christianity simply is not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the Spirit. For example, the words, be still and know that I am God, means next to nothing to the modern worshiper. James Montgomery Boyce said in his estimation from his own ministry, one out of a hundred Christians actively stand in all of God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. I think those are true too, those quotes. I know in my own heart how often I devalue God. How little I think of him. And I know too how that wreaks havoc in my own life. And I'm pretty sure you know how it wreaks havoc in your life too when you devalue the majesty of God. I know that you've been looking at the headlines recently, and there has been just a swarm of former evangelical leaders and worship leaders and evangelical celebrity pastors who have fallen away from the faith. And it's disconcerting to see this in the headlines. Um, But there's this an equally uh, uh, influential evangelical um, worship leader. His name's John Cooper. And this is what he says of his peers, many of them who he knows personally. He says this. He says, A common thread in my peers' lives in their falling away was their devaluation of God and their deification of their own feelings over and against the God of Scripture. He said, Is it any wonder that our disavowed leaders who are letting go of absolute truth see that their lives are falling apart? It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word, to value truth over emotion, to to value truth over experience. He says, I implore you, church, to anchor your life to God's word for just as we sung moments ago, For he changes not. What a prophetic word that we need to hear, no matter your age. Because given the culture in which we live, the fickleness of our own emotions and feelings and the deceitfulness of our own heart, we need to be reminded of the importance of God's word. You see, Moses knew that if Israel was going to keep itself from being floundered about and being influenced by the evils of society, and if they were truly going to function and live within this new purchase freedom that God had given them, they needed a full and accurate understanding of God and be devoted to it. And so he gives them Genesis, including Genesis 1. And we're going to see some wild and crazy stuff in this chapter and the chapters that follow. But Moses says, listen, this is not a myth. This isn't a conjecture. This isn't a creation of my own imagination. This wasn't a message in the bottle that it just happened upon. But rather, this is the revelation of God himself to the people of God, specifically and purposefully, so the people of God might respond to who God has revealed himself to be. God never reveals anything about himself without desiring to elicit a response from us. And that's exactly what's happening in Genesis. He tells us things about him so that we might know how to live. And that's why we always study Amen. That's the purpose of every Amen semester. That's essentially the reason that we're studying Genesis 1 this morning. I want you to imagine as we're studying this that that God is opening his, his word to you, Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, this is what God is saying. Hey, this is who I am. This is who I am, and I want you to know me as intimately as I know you so that you can enjoy the freedom that I've purchased for you. And so that's really our purpose this morning, and really for the rest of this semester. There's three things that we're going to look at today that's going to serve as the foundation for next week and the week after. Uh, Knowing God. What is it that we know about God? What does God want us to know about himself in verses 1 and 2? Then after that, we're going to look at the testimony of creation. There's lots of debate about the origin of all things, 
There's so much stuff that we can mine simply in the creation account in this chapter. Then thirdly, we're going to look at the good news of the Imago Dei. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? So first and foremost, knowing God. If we're going to live as God's people, we have to understand who God has revealed himself to be. We cannot rely upon who we want God to be because all we're going to do is make him after our own likeness, and that does no one any good. We can't rely on what the culture says about God. We have to rely on God, what he says about himself through Moses. So what does God say about himself through Moses? Marvelous things just in the first two verses. First off, he tells us that God is preeminent. In these first two verses, Moses brings us face to face, friends, with the ultimate reality, God. Now, I know it's a no-brainer that the first subject, the first sentence of God's word is God, but I think in our individualistic culture, sometimes we run the danger of missing the significance of that. The first subject of the first sentence of God's word is not Egypt, it's not America, it's certainly not us, it is God. And if we miss that, boys, we miss absolutely everything. If we miss that, whatever we read in verse 2 to the end of Revelation will not make sense if we do not understand That everything is about God. Moses, remember, he's an expert author, an expert writer, a majestic author. Much more than that, he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to write what God wants him to write. Therefore, the structure and the format and the putting together of all these verses are purposeful. And the purpose of verse 1 is so that you and I might know that God is, everything's about him and life ought to be lived around his orbit. So if if we take away anything, let's just take away that, that everything's about God. He's preeminent. Secondly, we learn that God is preexistent. Now, again, like I said earlier in my prayer, a lot of these things we've heard before, but please don't miss the significance of these things. It's it's mind-boggling. Just think about the first phrase we see in verse 1, in the beginning. How mind-boggling is that phrase, in the beginning? Have you ever wondered, brothers, what it was like before atoms were fashioned together? Have you ever, I mean, we made fun of Ole Miss just a second ago. Do you remember what it was like for Ole Miss to actually be good? It seems like it was forever ago. Do you remember what it was like before there was Gus's fried chicken? Do you remember what it was like before you? Of course you don't. Do you remember what it was like before angels existed? Verse 1, this phrase in verse 1 transports us back to that mysterious time. And this is what it says. This is what it declares. God is. No explanation, no justification, no defense. All it simply says is that that point in time when nothing existed, God is. He's eternal. Now that has several implications. First off, that means he is self-sufficient. God is complete within himself. He depends on nothing. And the wonderful truth of that is, is that he did not need to create you, but rather he wanted to create you. And he wanted to create you not to get something from you, but rather to bless you with himself. That's what his pre-existence and his self-sufficiency implies. It also means, too, that he is the only necessary being that exists. There was never a point in time where nothing existed. If such a time existed, nothing would exist now. Because all that exists, exists because God is. Everything is dependent upon him. Even in in the perfect garden, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve in their perfected state were still dependent upon God. How much more so, brothers, are we in our fallen state? 
But just think about how comforting that is. The next time you fret about your health or providing for your families or your grandkids or you fret about where this world is headed, where our country is headed, just just get your two fingers and put it right here on your neck and feel your pulse. When you feel that blood pulsate through your veins, just give God thanks that that is not contingent upon you. And by reminding yourself of that, you remind yourself that nothing is contingent upon you. It's all contingent upon God. Everything's dependent upon him. He is preeminent. He's preexistent, which means he's self-sufficient. He's the only necessary being. It also means, too, that we see in these first few verses that he is sovereign. We just said that he existed before all things, but see how amazing this is. Still, things that did not yet exist still obeyed his voice. It was by the power of his word in conjunction with the irresistible and creative Holy Spirit that he breathed everything into existence. God conquered the chaotic world of nothingness and darkness by a mere whisper. Brothers, what power does our God have? There's no God like our God. But also how comforting is it? Because we see in Isaiah that it's that same God that says, fear not for I am with you. The same sovereign God who's in control of all things pledges himself to you. How amazing is that? God is sovereign. We also see, too, that God is transcendent. He created all things, but he's distinct from his creation. This was the major problem with uh, Egypt and every other pantheistic culture and every other religion that, that, uh, that equates God with his creation or gods with creation. This is the problem with humanism that essentially says that Jesus is nothing more than a good guy, a homeboy, but he's nothing really more different than us. He's just a good teacher. The problem with that then, friends, is that it diminishes God's otherness. And when you diminish God's otherness, we lose grasp of his holiness because his holiness is predicated on his otherness. Studying Genesis 1, I came to the conclusion, I just realized that whenever I, I feel like my devotional life and my worship life waning, it's because I have forgotten that. And the recipe, the, 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 the prescription that God gives me is to sit back under Genesis 1 and to remind myself of God's otherness, of how majestic and holy he is. Because when we do that, we will most definitely tremble in all of him. So he's transcendent, but make no mistake, he's also personal. God is not an it, brothers. He's a thou. He's not unknowable. He makes himself known. That's what his word is. It's his self-revelation, his spoken word so that you might know him. But think about that implication. That means he also is intimately knowledgeable of you. God, God knows who you are. He thought about you. Every single one of us. Do you know that God actually put time and thought and delight and joy in forming you in your mother's wombs? How comforting is that? How less fearful, less lonely, and less sad would we be in this very impersonal world if we just reminded ourselves that we were created by a personal God? He's also relational. Or rather, he's triune, which tells us he's relational. I love Genesis because... We see the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1, which is amazing. Of course, we know that we see the doctrine of the Trinity when in the uh, sixth day of creation, when God creates man in his image, let us make man in our image. We also see the Holy Spirit in verse 2, where the Holy Spirit's hovering over the chaotic waters. But we also see the doctrine of the Trinity in the first three words of the first sentence. Bara sharith bara Elohim in the Hebrew. 
The first three words, Elohim, is the name that God gives himself in Genesis chapter 1. It's referring to his majestic, other-centered creatorness as God. Now, in chapter 2, when we study next week with Todd, we're going to learn his covenant name, Yahweh, that he actually enters into relationship with people. But here, he gives us his name that just shows his majesty, but it's written in the plural. That's significant when you look at the verb, bara, which is create, written in the singular. Three persons in one singularly creates all things. The doctrine of the Trinity in the first three words of sentence one. But what's awesome about that is, is that it tells us that God has always been a relational God. God has always existed in the perfect community, enjoyed fellowship within himself for all of eternity. He didn't need you, but he wanted to create you. Why? To bring you into fellowship with himself. As image bearers, we were created to be friends with one another. It is good for us to be in relationship, but ultimately, brothers, we were created to be in relationship with him. C.S. Lewis says that, that he describes it this way. He says, God enjoyed the divine, intimate dance within himself for all of eternity. And out of his goodness and grace, he creates you and breathes life into you so that you might enter into that dance with him. In these first two verses, Moses packs it full of answers to that great question, who is God? And he's telling Israel, don't you ever listen to what Egypt told you about God. He's not one among many. He's the one true greater God that exists three persons in one. He created all things. He knows you. He's not capricious. He cares about you. He's not indifferent. He loves you. But he's not to be trifled with because he's sovereign over all things. He cannot be ignored. He should not be trifled with because he is God. Now, he tells them this, the very same reason he tells us this, because we must live in response to who God reveals himself to be, right? That's the only reason he tells us things about him. So here's a few things that I just thought of, and you're free to to have your own implications. But if God is holy, then that means that, that we owe him our whole hearts. We owe him our entire worshipful lives. We owe him 100% wholehearted devotion. The half-hearted Christianity that I toyed with for most of my life simply is not reflective of the awesome nature of God. God does not need us, but he's worthy of us. He deserves all of it because he is holy. If God is preeminent, that means that he is our ultimate loyalty. Pharaoh in Egypt is not our ultimate loyalty. Our president in our country is not our ultimate loyalty. Our bottom line and our retirement plans are not our ultimate loyalty. God is. And because God is sovereign, that means that he is ruler, which means we are his subjects, which means we are not allowed to say no to whatever he asks of us. We can't negotiate because he's creator. We're not. We must submit to what he says. If God is self-sufficient, just think about what that means. We never have to worry again. What in the world do we have to be afraid of? If if God is self-sufficient, if he is the provider and sustainer of all things, what in the world do we have to be afraid of? All we have to do is recognize that. And enter into his powerful presence. If Genesis 1 verse 1 through verse 2 tells us anything, it tells us that everything is about God. And therefore, brothers, he deserves our whole heart, our whole mind, and our whole strength. Uh, What people tell us is that, uh, what what even um, sociologists tell us, philosophers tell us, is that everybody lives in light of a worldview. For our purposes, everybody lives in light of who they think God is. So the question is, is our view of God shaped more about what we think God is or should be, or the world says, or is it shaped by what God says of himself? 
If we're going to live in light of who God is and be his redeemed people, we must know what he says of himself. And that's what we see in the first two verses. Now, secondly, a little bit more quickly, what do we learn about the testimony of creation itself? The Apostle Paul tells us that the creation account itself in Romans chapter 1 reveals to us certain things about God and his purposes for the world. Now, we know because of the fall, some of those things have been distorted. We haven't viewed it rightly. We'll get there. But ultimately, brothers, we know that creation tells us very important things about the purpose of the world and our place in it. Now, before we really dive in, I think it'd be good for us just to think about the different theories and models of creation, the origin of all things. There's so much debate out there. Let's just talk about it very briefly. There's some Christian theories and some non-Christian theories. The famous non-Christian theory is obviously atheistic evolution. We're going to talk much about this, mainly, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful or funny, simply because it's foolish. God says himself in his word, in Psalm 14.1, that if you go outside and just look at the heavens and the stars, and you decide that there is no God, then that's foolish. But ultimately, too, it just doesn't make sense, scientifically or logically, Because two of the premises that atheistic evolutionists have is that, one, there's no design, rhyme, or reason to the world. It just happened. And there's no divine being. There's no eternal God or cosmic authority holding everybody accountable. Well, let's just think about that. If there's no design, if there's no rhyme of reason, then the scientific method simply does not work. The scientific method is predicated on the fact there's certain things are supposed to happen. There's a rhyme of reason to the world. So if we don't think there's design... If there's no rhyme of reason to how things work, how can we ever possibly know anything? The scientific method simply does not work if there's not a designer. If we think that there's no creator God or no uh, infinite being or eternal being, well, that breaks the law of causality, the scientific law of causality. Something can't come from nothing. There has to be an eternal something for there to be something. So it doesn't make logical sense. Secondly, the fossil record doesn't prove it. Charles Darwin himself said there's no evidence in the fossil record of that link between species and macroevolution. It's called the missing link for a reason. It's missing. And they haven't found it still. There's also philosophical holes in it. If you take away some uh, divine being or a cosmic authority, then that means that there is no moral standard that you and I can do whatever the heck we want to whoever we want, no problems asked. And that's all fine and dandy until you realize that every single person, whether if they're a Christian or not, have a sense of oughtness and right and wrong in their heart. So how does that work? So it just doesn't make sense. Now, the other theory is theistic evolution. Now, some Christians believe this, some very famous Christians, and they believe that there is a one true creator, God, that he made all things, he sustains all things, but through evolution. Now, I don't really put a whole lot of stock in that personally, because I think if you look at the scriptures, you'll see that God's intimate dealings with humanity and the rest of creation is way too intimate to jive with this theory. So let's just move on from that. There are true theories, two theories that are very commonly held amongst all evangelical Christians, one or the other. The first one is the young earth creationist. Now, this view is held by many. It was held by John Calvin himself. It's the idea that God, there is one true creator, God. He made all things ex nihilo out of nothing. And he sustains all things. And he did so in the context of 24 literal solar hour days. It's the most common and and easiest read of Genesis chapter 1. The other reading or the other interpretation is what you call uh, old earth creationists. People who believe that there is one true creator, God, who made everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. He sustains all things. But given the literary framework that we see in Genesis chapter 1 that we'll look at in just a moment, and also the heavy anthropomorphic language we see in Genesis 1, 
That is, phrases that God gives us to accommodate our ignorance as finite beings. For example, God saw what he made and said it was good. God saw? Does that mean God has eyeballs? No, because God is a spirit. He gives us a phrase to accommodate, help us to understand what's going on. But giving those two things in concert, it at least allows for, doesn't demand, but allows for that the days we read about in here are not really 24 literal hour solar days, but rather heavenly days. Either or, both of those theories are held by many Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians. It's really not a matter of orthodoxy when it comes to those two. People on our staff believe both of those things. They fall on either side of the deal. But here's the thing. The thing that all Christians must believe that shapes our worldview, that shapes our understanding of the rest of the Bible and, and directs our faith are these things. Number one, there is one true and greater God who made all things out of nothing. Which means then that the biblical account is not myth, but rather it's historical and it's factual. Which also implies, too, that there's a historical Adam and Eve. The Apostle Paul bases his entire soteriology, the theology of salvation, on the fact that there was a literal Adam. Jesus attested to a literal Adam. Another thing we must believe, too, is that God created human beings purposefully and distinctly. And lastly, God is our only hope, because not only do we have one true creator God, we also have only one redeemer, he's the same man, he's the same person. So we have to hold to those things, because it shapes absolutely everything, and we just have to be okay with the fact that the other things are a little bit of a mystery, we just might not know fully until we get to heaven. But that being said, how do we really interpret Genesis 1? Because like I said, it just lays the foundation for everything. Well, there's three things we have to take into account. One, the historical context. We've already mentioned this, but remember, Moses' primary motive in giving us Genesis 1 is not to give us science. It includes science because God creates in time and space and history, which means there is such a thing as science and biology and geology. God made those things, but that wasn't Moses' intent to give us a scientific explanation. His intent is to give us true theology. He's saying, don't worship those things that the world worships because they're just creatures and they drip off the fingertips of the one true creator God. There is a rhyme of reason to the world. It's it's not chaotic. God designed it good. Something did happen to it, but but there is a purpose to the world and it matters how you live. And oh, by the way, Israel, you're not slaves. You're not scum. You're not subhuman. In fact, it's the exact opposite. You're the apex of my creation. That's what Moses is trying to communicate to us in this text. Then there's the literary context. Now, Moses was writing history. Israel would have interpreted it as history. God intends it to be read as history by us. But we also have to understand, too, that Moses did not write history in the way that we read history in high school. It's not this textbook that he gives us. Uh, Authors call it historical prose. And what that means is it's not really poetry but it's this hymnic rendering, this literary form, this majestic uh, uh, format that he gives us to both communicate history and theology. Now, I gave a little paradigm on your sheet there. Um, It's called the literary framework. Day one, two, and three on the left side. Day four, five, and six on the right side. Day seven's right under it. Let's just look at this and see how marvelous God's word is, just in its design and the way it was written. In verse one, you have the precondition. God started putting all the basic stuff of the universe together, but it was three things. One, it was dark. There was no light. There was no life. It was void and it was formless, which means it was uninhabitable and uninhabited. God was putting things together, but it was chaotic. It was dark 
It was uninhabited. But what do we see in days one through three after we see the Holy Spirit hovering over that darkness, which, by the way, is supposed to help us anticipate something marvelous is about to happen. Well, what happens? In days one and three, God brings order out of chaos. Scholars say that he forms habitats, or rather kingdoms. He makes it habitable. In day one, he does away with darkness by making light. In day two, he separates the expanses. He makes the sky and he makes the sea. In day three, he makes dry land and brings forth vegetation. He makes the world habitable. He forms it together. Then the corresponding days of days four through six, he, bring, he unpacks the potential by making inhabitants or kings of those kingdoms. So in day one, you have light, but in day four, he does not recreate light. He just fashions light together in stars and the sun and moon. In day five, he creates the fish of the sea and the birds of the air to live in the habitat that he made in day two. Then in day six, he brings forth land animals and creeping and crawling things. And by the way, the apex of his creation, humanity, to live in the domain of the dry land where he provides for us with vegetation. Then in day seven, he crowns himself Lord is all by resting, that he has finished his creative work. Now, what does this tell us just in that format? It tells us that God is the one true creator God, that he's the God of order, that he designed the world, and just by the power of his word alone, he can bring order out of chaos. Now, it's with those two contexts, we can begin to see the amazing things in just these couple of days, these six days. Obviously, we don't have time to talk about it all, but there are two things I want us just to point out. Notice about the theme of light in day one and day four. Isn't it interesting that light shone for three full days even before the sun was created in day four? What is that all about? That, by the way, is one of the proofs that old earth people point to that Moses probably wasn't talking about 24 solar hour days because there wasn't a solar system yet. But again, that's not Moses' main point to talk to us about science. He's communicating something theological. So what is he saying? That light shone in the world before the sun. Well, this is what he's saying. God is the source of light. Light in the Bible identified or signified both truth and life. And he's saying God is the source of life. He is light. He is truth. Similar to what Jesus says in the desert when he's tempted by Satan, where he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Moses is saying, you owe your existence not to the solar system, not to the sun god, not to the sex god, not to the food gods or whoever. You owe your existence to God himself who created all those things. He's the source of truth and light. Then at the end of each day, he declares it good on the sixth day, very good. Why? Because in the apex of his creation, humanity... He creates us to be stewards over all of the cosmos. You're not a slave. You're not subhuman. That's who you are. But in case we think too highly of ourselves, in day seven, the day that he rested, he enthrones himself in majesty over all of it. Now, boys, what do we learn from that? One, we learn that God is the source of goodness. The origin of all things is goodness. The world didn't start out evil. There wasn't a duality of good and evil. It was God, and God made all things good because he is the source of goodness. Even after the fall, the heavens declared the glory of God. Vestiges of his goodness are still all over the place. When we walk outside this morning and hear the birds chirp, we should delight and give praise to God because that's exactly why the earth exists. We see in the Psalms that the heavens declare his glory. We see that God's the source of goodness. We also see, too, that God is an extravagant creator. Friends, he did not need to create all the things he created, and certainly the number of them. 
I mean, how many birds and ducks do we have? I don't even know. What is an emu? Is that the one that looks like a camel or an ostrich? I'm not sure. But I know that we didn't need an emu, but we have one. God did not need to put the thoughts and the imagination of whoever he did that invented the game of baseball and that invented the game of football so that you could have fun with your grandkids watching those games. He didn't need to do that, but he did. God did not need to create an eclipse. What is an eclipse? Well, I looked at NASA before I came here. The eclipse happens because the uh, moon's rotation is five degrees off from the Earth's rotation around the sun. And for some reason, which they can't explain, those rotations cross which, by the way, our our galaxy and our universe is the only one that this is possible. But nevertheless, it happens, and they can't explain it, and that's NASA's explanation. Well, that's a great explanation, NASA. I got a better one. God simply wanted to melt our faces off with wonder. That's why God did it. God is an extravagant God. He creates beauty. He creates an abundance of things for his glory. We also see, too, that God is a trustworthy provider for all of these things that he creates the thousands of different species that he didn't need to create, we do know that he provides for them, each and every one of them. Which really gets to the heart, too, of how deeply he cares about us. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 6? (laughs) If the Father clothes the flowers of the field and feeds the bird of the air, how much more so will he provide and care for you? Just how, how less we would worry and be afraid. If when we woke up in the morning and just noticed that God has sustained creation, how less fearful would we be knowing that he's the same God who's committed himself to us? Ultimately, creation dignifies every single person in this room. Because this is what God says in his creation account. All the things that I've made, all the things that you can see and touch and taste and experience, yes, I made it for my glory, but I also made it to give it as a gift to you. My image bearers. You ever think about that? Not just what creation says about our creator, but rather what our creator says about us. Uh, Carl Sagan, he's the guy who made atheistic evolution pretty mainstream with his video study called The Cosmos. He made a sequel to that called The Pale Blue Dot. The Pale Blue Dot was a picture taken by Voyager 1 in the early 90s, about a billion miles away from Earth, took a picture of Earth, and they came back as a little pale blue dot in a wide expanse of the universe. Now, the implication was from Carl Sagan, try to convince yourself, people, or church, that you are significant or have worth if you are just but a mite on a pale blue dot in the grand expanse of the universe. How dare you think you're significant is the implication. Well, God through Moses is saying, listen, brothers, you do not have to convince yourself. I will tell you how significant you are. You are the crown of my creation. And we might say that sounds too good to be true. Well, you dang right it's too good to be true. King David knew it was too good to be true. And Psalm 8 says, Father, who am I in light of your glory and the cosmos and all of you created? Who am I that you should think so highly of me that you make me a little lower than angels and give me all of this to steward for your glory? Who am I? Who are we? Well, God says we're the apex of his creation. God made all things, filled all things, made everything beautiful and good for his glory, but also to give us as a gift to steward as his image bearers. Now, Todd's going to talk about this a lot next week, but here's a few things we need to know about the good news of the Imago Dei. Remember, Israel was told that they were worm dirt. They were told they were less than human. They said the only person, they were told the only person that was made in the image of God and therefore had a special relationship with God was the, the mighty Pharaoh, but they were just tools to be used by Pharaoh. 
Moses says to them, don't you believe that for one moment? And brothers, don't you believe that one moment about yourselves? We don't have pharaohs in our lives. But every single person in this room from one time or another, either by an entire other people group or a lousy boss or a lousy dad, were told by them that we were less than human, that we were insignificant or unlovable or unredeemable. All of us have been told that one way or another throughout our history of our lives. And Moses, or rather God, through Moses, says to you, don't you for one second believe that? Do you have any idea how God says you are significant? First, he says you are uniquely loved being created in his image. Brothers, the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is invested in each of you. God thought of you. God the Father orchestrated your creation. God the Son put you together and God the Holy Spirit breathed life into your lungs and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has indwelt you and given you new life. The entire Godhead is invested in every single one of you. Unlike any other aspect or creature in creation, including the angels, God looked upon you and said, very good. Do you have any idea how loved you are by God? Just think about all the things that God made. He was there up close and personal when he created the first star. Can you imagine how mesmerizing that would have been just to see that, the power and the beauty? Can you imagine what it was like to see the first mountain formed or the water made and the first river and the first ocean created? God was up close and personal with all of that. But he said all of that pales in comparison to the beauty and the delight I had in making you in your mother's womb. God loves you, brothers. C.S. Lewis says there's not one ordinary person in this room or on the street corner you can meet because every human being is created in the image of God. They're uniquely loved by him. Secondly, because of that, we have a very special identity. And what that means is that we, we, we were created. We, we, we were given the identity to be reflective mirrors of God in the world. That's why he designed us, to reflect his character and his nature and his righteousness in the world. Now, we messed that up in the fall. We'll talk about that in a moment. But still, that was our original identity, to be his reflectors in the world. We were designed for the rest of creation to look at us, to give God thanks because of them looking at us. But not only that, he also created us to be in his family, to carry out his family business of extending his kingdom and his rule and his presence over all the creation. And because of that, We have a special purpose. God says in verses 28 through 31, I have given you a special mandate. You are to imitate me in my interaction with creation. You are to subdue it and rule it and be fruitful and multiply. Which means that our purpose, every single one of us, before and after the fall, especially if you are in Christ, is to unpack the potential of God's creation just like he did. And we do this in a number of ways, especially after the fall, certainly through evangelism and introducing people to Jesus Christ. But we also do it by making better cities, safer cities. We do this by loving people, being agents of restoration and grace. We do this by raising godly men and women out of our children. We do this by forming godly minds in our classrooms. We do this by making paintings that are glorious, making music. We do this by writing books. We do this by making laws that are, that are meant to protect our citizens, but also to dignify criminals because they too are created in the image of God. This means that we're to make policies and vote on policies that preserve the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb. This means that we're to visit uh, nursing homes, to visit those who have been or at least feel like they've just been forgotten to remind them that they are loved and they are cherished and they are valued. 
This means that we're to make homes for people. This means that we're to make delicious meals and not fried food, but good, nutritious meals that are delightful to folks that can't afford it. We're meant to, 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 to harvest all of this goodness and all this beauty from creation just as feverishly as God did to bless other people. The point is, it doesn't matter what Pharaoh says about you. It doesn't matter what Carl Sagan says about you. It doesn't matter what your mom says about you. It matters what God says about you. And he, well, this is what God says about you. He says, you are significant. Everything I've made, I've made for my glory. Yes, but I'll also give it to you as a gift because you are the crown jewel of my creation. You are image bearers, every single one of you. The problem is that that's not the end of our story. <laughs> that's the origin of our story, but that's not the end of it. The fall came in Genesis 3, and all of that got ruined. We'll talk more about that in three weeks. We're still creating God's image, but that image is now marred because of our rebellion in the garden. God still loves us, but our relationship with him has been severed. We've lost intimate fellowship with him. Our relationship with each other has been severed. We're no longer for each other. We no longer love each other. We're just looking out for ourselves. Our relationship with creation has been severed. It is impossible to summarize accurately the devastation and the travesty of the fall in Genesis 3 by what happened there. But here's the good news. In Genesis 1, not only do we meet God, our creator, we're also introduced to God, our redeemer, brothers. Genesis 1, every single verse just drips with Jesus Christ. And this is why we cannot be New Testament Christians only, because we miss out on the Old Testament. We miss out the fullness of, of who Jesus is and what he does for us. For example, do you understand that every single abstract attribute that we looked at moments ago coalesce and come to full manifestation in the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus is the one who's the powerful word he made, who became flesh, we see in John 1. Jesus is the ultimate giver of life, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus is the sovereign one. Jesus is the preeminent one. Jesus is the transcendent one. And all of that is important because Jesus is the one who became man. God does not leave it to be these abstract principles and doctrine of a God that we cannot see, but he loves us so much that he came to be known by us. We see this in Matthew 1, where this same God that we've been talked about, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was born so that we might know who he is personally. The same God who formed stars is the same God that became man to touch the scars of lepers. The same holy God is the same God who became man to spend time with the sinner and the sexually broken and the woman at the well. This is who Jesus is. It's the God that we meet. See, we, in Genesis 1, we meet God, our creator, and God, our redeemer. Now, how does he do this? Well, he does this. But look at all the themes that we just talked about. Well, first off, Jesus is the true light that came into the world. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has in Jesus Christ shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge and the glory of God. What that means is, this is essentially explains Romans 1. While creation does reveal to so much about who God is, we do not know because you and I are blinded by the darkness of our own hearts. And as we see in Isaiah, every single person in this world is living as if God never shone his light into the world on day one. 
Because their, light, their hearts have been darkened with sin. But here comes Jesus. Jesus opens our eyes. He gives us the eyes of faith. And now we can walk outside and hear the birds chirp and see the moon fading away and the sun come up. And we can give thanks to God because Jesus has opened our eyes to truth. He's opened our eyes that we're a sinner and that we need to be saved by grace. This is what he does. He becomes the perfect second Adam. This is the second thing he does. Jesus isn't just the perfect image of God. He's the exact image of God. Where our first parent, Adam, led us all into sin as image bearers, this is what Jesus does. As the second Adam, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. So that when we place our faith in him day by day with the creative or recreative work of his Holy Spirit, he transforms us back into his own image. And therefore, this is your destiny. If you are in Jesus Christ, when he comes back and makes all things new in the twinkling of an eye, you'll be transformed into a little Christ where you will rule over all of the cosmos, new heavens and new earth with your Savior. And he does that because he is our true Sabbath. When God finished creation on the seventh day, he says, it is finished and rested. He said that not because he was sleepy. He rested just because there was nothing else to do with his creative work. He had finished it. However, God continued on in his redemptive work that he started in Genesis 3.15. That is, until Jesus, at the end of John chapter 19, hung on the cross, hung his head, and said, it is finished. What that means is, all the redemptive work that needed to be done has been done in Jesus Christ. He gives it to you as a gift when you receive him by faith. And he brings you into the eternal Sabbath rest that you were created for. St. Augustine says that because we were created by God, our hearts will never be at rest until they rest in him. And because Jesus is God, we can trust what he says. That all who are weary and need rest, all who mourn and need comfort, all who are weak and need strength, all who sin and need a Savior, come to me and I will give you the rest you need. Friends, this is who we're studying this semester. God our creator and God our redeemer. And me and Todd and George are just so excited that we get to stand in all of him together and learn what it means to live in light of his power and his grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you created us for yourself and even when we sinned against you, you redeemed us for yourself. Father, let us always stand in all of who you are. Let us always marvel at your majesty and wonder and let us always be comforted that you who are our majestic, transcendent God are the same God who became one of us so that we might become like you. We love you, O Lord, and we pray all these things in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen.